Or You Know, a show where we chat with some amazing human beings who are storytellers, collectors, and folklorists as we discuss the history of inspiration behind and importance of recording and sharing regional tales. Today, I have the amazing Dr. Christina Bisonic. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, it's nice to see you, Heather. How are you? I'm okay. <laughs> I'm better now that I'm talking to you. That's everybody's stock answer these days. Right? So. Yeah. Yes. I'm fine. Everything's fine. Yes. Oh, that fire back there. No, it's not back there. Yeah. There's Listen, don't pay any attention to that. Everything is great. <clears throat> oh man. Um, so I wanted you on here because you're one of the best storytellers I know. Oh, thank you very much for saying that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I try. Yeah. And uh, as soon as we logged on here, I noticed the board in the background, which we might as well just tackle that right now. It's perfect for today. Yes. The shortest distance between two people is a story. And you said nobody knows who said that though? No. And this has become my life's motto. Back in 2008, I took a digital storytelling workshop with Story Center. And um, I met some of the best storytellers I've ever known through that project and, and ended up becoming certified in digital storytelling and teach digital storytelling everywhere. And on my campus this semester, I'm teaching a group of eighth graders how to create digital stories. Um, and this quote came to me by the teachers from Story Center. And it just hit me. Like, you know, all my life I've used metaphor and storytelling to relate to other people, to teach people things because I've been a professor all these years. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and it's true that I think that even when people don't know how to relate to each other or they're angry with each other or they think they know what the other person is feeling or something, when you tell someone a story and they listen, it automatically brings us together. Mm -hmm. And so storytelling is, you know, the center of everything, I think, because yeah. it's a way to break down walls um, and a way to remind people that we're human. Yeah. Now you mentioned digital storytelling. Can you explain what that is exactly? Sure. So a digital story is about two to four minutes. Um, and it combines really three storylines, right? So okay. you have a narrative where you tell the actual story in words and you do a voiceover. And then you have images like photos and uh, video. And then you have um, sound, like a, a soundtrack in the background. Sometimes it's the sound of the ER or the sound of rain falling. Um, but most of the time it's some type of song or music that, that in some way um, works to, to do the work of that story. And so it's like a little movie, but the purpose of digital storytelling, at least from Story Center's uh, philosophy and my philosophy, um, it, it's all about giving the creator, the storyteller, the power and the platform to tell stories that might not, not otherwise get told. So that's an important um, aspect of digital storytelling for me. So it's giving people the, the, this tool set that they, they didn't even know that they could use um, to tell stories that no one else really might care to tell. You know, and now with social media, we can share it everywhere. YouTube, Facebook, even on Instagram, you could do a little reel or something. So yeah. Are the kids really picking that up? I mean, are they eating that up? It seems like something that would be of interest for eighth graders? Well, my college students and I have been doing this for 12 years mm -hmm. in, in conjunction with the Heinz History Center in Pittsburgh. So they tell individual stories, but they also tell community history stories. So nice. they've gone to, I think at this point, 145 um, different historical societies throughout Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia, and, and talked about their history. Um, and the eighth graders, this is the first time I've worked with this group of people, this population, they're telling personal stories and they're phenomenal. Yeah. We, we just uh, looked at 
final drafts um, yesterday morning. And I was so impressed with the range of stories that they chose to tell. Some of them talked about COVID and what life was like during the quarantine last year. And some of them talked about, you know, learning how to play guitar. Some of them talked about um, their parents divorcing in the aftermath of that. And then so, some people talked about, um, you know, meet, making their first friend. Um, it was just, it's been wonderful seeing how, and it, it has brought me to tears more than I'm like sitting in the corner going, <laughs> um, yeah. because they're trusting me and their classmates with a piece of, of, of them um, yeah. sharing it and knowing that they're going to be public as well. Yeah, uh, it's a pretty vulnerable position. Especially when you're 13. Yes, that's a vulnerable <laughs> age. <laughs> That was a difficult time for me too. I, um, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With storytelling, um, that's something that has been a part of your life for a very long time, correct? Yes. And in fact, if you didn't ask, I was going to tell you because this is so important. So um, my grandmother, Jean Gould Berge, um, was the best storyteller I have ever known. Um, she, if, at any given moment on any given day, you would find this woman with a crowd of people of all ages around her listening. She told the most horrifying and the most humorous stories <laughs> I've ever heard in my life. And from her, I mean, I think that in some ways, some of us are naturally gifted more towards words and language and others maybe more towards math or right. science. I do think that there's something to the way our brains are configured. Um, but I also think that being in an environment with someone who loved to tell stories and sometimes they had a message and sometimes they didn't. And <laughs> I, think, I think a lot of the time a lot of the time when people say, well, you know, you have to make this story matter to everyone else. My grandmother didn't always abide by that. And those are my favorite stories. The ones that were just like, what am I supposed to do with this information? Um, because she was trying to tell us something about life during her childhood or something about her perspective on life and what is valuable and what is important. And um, I have to say that, I mean, she passed away in 2013 that I've been so concerned um, that something will happen to my brain or something and I'll lose. I mean, I've written a lot of them down, but that as the bearer of her, you know, omnibus of stories, mm -hmm. I get very nervous that I might lose one or something like that because right. um i hear her voice so very clearly um in my mind and in fact i'm working on a new novel it's the first my first piece of fiction ever and i'm telling finally telling her story i finally found a way i think um to tell her story she spent all that time telling us other stories and and this is her chance that's amazing do you have audio of her I had audio of her, but I had a house fire um, and lost um, mm -hmm. everything, um, including yeah. that audio. And so even though I can hear her as loud and clear as if she was sitting next to me right now, yeah. Um, unfortunately, the cadence of her voice and her, she had the, the laugh, a laugh that would, um, it wasn't a cackle. It was, it was just this, this hearty, like big, free, unrestricted laugh. And we know that in our culture that women are supposed to behave a certain way and they're supposed to, you know, comport themselves in a certain way. My grandmother, on the one hand, up until like the end of her life would put on lipstick and do her hair just to sit at the kitchen table and smoke a cigarette. Right. On the other hand, she cussed like a truck driver um, <laughs> and her stories were often ribald. They were like these, you know, amazing tales that didn't have any kind of um, 
boundaries or restrictions on them. And her laugh really reflected that absolute at easeness she had with herself and being in the world like she commanded a room i mean and, and it, she was six foot one as well wow. and an absolutely stunning woman um just physically stunning but at the same time she um i i, I will never forget the moments of my life just just walking in in the house at the end of a school day and seeing this crowd of people around the kitchen table just mesmerized <laughs> by her by one of her stories or sitting out in our backyard on a summer evening and all the neighborhood kids who, you know, were teenagers at that time. Imagine getting teenagers to sit down and listen to an old lady <laughs> tell a story. And my grandmother would have them just dying laughing. Like they would bring their friends to our backyard to listen to my grandma tell her, tell her stories. So um, I'm, I'm anxious to, to be the person that has been gifted this body of work um uh -huh. and uh but i i hope hopefully i've lived up to that you know i've answered the call oh i'd uh, say i don't know yeah anyway. i think you're doing a great job are her were her stories like actual always personal tales or would she make stuff up uh in the end that storytelling fashion just taking like kernels of truth and then embellishing do you know you know, I, I have thought about this a lot over the years. And in fact, you're going to ask me, I think later to tell you um, <clears throat> a story. And uh, the one I chose, I think is fascinating. I think rather than it being so much about what she added, mm -hmm. it was often what didn't get included. That's the interesting part. It's the, the um, omission intentional or otherwise of information um that makes the stories interesting there are some tales that she told that were um completely disturbing um imagine being a five-year-old and being told about how the neighbors when my grandmother was a baby or a little girl that the neighbors had a had a baby an infant die and that um that the, the the baby was on display in the like they did in that time period, like in in their coffin, and that the children were like playing with the the dead baby and like throwing spoons in the casket and I mean it's just like <laughs> like yeah, but my grandmother like she had a purpose to telling this story, you know, about what do we understand about how people respond to 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 death? I mean that was the other thing right. too, like sitting up at night with a dead body in in your home to make sure that on the one hand cats this idea of cats which i love cats and i hate this concept yeah wouldn't attack the body but at the same time to prevent like the spirits the idea of the spirits roaming and like all these things like there's mm -hmm. so many layers um and i i really I wish I had a um, hundred hours to talk to you because I could tell you a hundred hours of her, of her stories that are just so give us a, a capture, a time period so well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing that I've noticed in my studies is the area in general, which I guess we should explain where you are uh, and where yeah. you grew up. Cause I think that that has a lot to do with the culture of storytelling in general as far as at least what I've found in some of my readings when it comes to folklore and, and writing stuff down, I think that there's something to be said about people, where you live and how communities interacted and families interacted for transmitting those stories and preserving them. Oh, absolutely. And I, um, I think that place, as my dissertation director once said, place matters, it matters like hell. Um, and, and she was right that they, you know, I'm from Northern West Virginia. I live in Wheeling, West Virginia. I grew up in Moundsville, West Virginia, which as you know, um, on, I always say it's, you know, it's place of the dead because on one side of the street, literally is the, the West Virginia state penitentiary, which closed in 1995. And then literally I, I saw this in an article yesterday, 400 feet away across mm -hmm. the street, Jefferson Avenue, 
is the mound. It's the largest conical Indian burial mound east of the Mississippi River. Um, and so I, growing up in that kind of world where you had executions yeah. on one side of the street and then a mound of uh, dead people on the other, <laughs> you kind of, yeah. So, and I, I have found that storytelling in this region is so um, important. And I think just in, in general to all humans, um, because it is a way to tell people what is valuable and what isn't. Um, it's a way to show people, to, to tell them lessons, to teach them something. Um, my grandmother used to say, well, if you can't learn, then you've got to feel. And what she meant by that was that if I tell you several times, don't put your hand on that hot burner and you don't listen to me and you put your hand <laughs> on that hot burner, you're going to feel that. And by God, you're going to learn. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so that's like this philosophy that you just kind of <laughs> live with and it comes out in the story. So, but given that, you know, there was this, this odor of death. <laughs> that kind of hung over um, where I grew up. Uh, there's definitely uh, that has impacted the, the kinds of stories that we tell. Plus, I think Northern Appalachia, which is where Wheeling is and in, in the Northern, Northern West Virginia, um, there's a lot of pessimism here for good reason. Um, and I think that that works its way into the kinds of stories that we tell about ourselves and their outcomes and things like that so definitely place matters and you've got hills and hollows too so and a river the ohio river is here and you know there's nothing like seeing the fog on the ohio river and trying to understand you know what's in the fog what you can and cannot see and and being right. deep in the valley and and but also being able to see you know, sort of up into the hills, what's in the hills, what's in the valley, and the differences between the people here. Some, you know, if you, people like me who grew up in sort of in town, if you want to call it that, have a this accent, right? Yeah, mine, um, the same yes. as mine. <laughs> yeah. And the people who grew up on the ridges, and we're talking like a few miles away, just up, up a hill and around a corner, have Southern accents. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And a different philosophy of life yeah. more in, likely to be and this isn't always true but more independent um you know more willing to to be individuals um and to want to be away from um town and and yeah. groups of people and things like that and and feeling like they can survive on their own and that sort of stuff so um <clears throat> definitely place matters and so we've got this complex place people often assume as you know that you know Appalachians that were all the same, but there's so much um, difference uh, mm -hmm. in this area, and that that's what makes it an interesting place for storytelling and for other things. So, yeah, that's one thing that I noticed whenever, of course, we met in Wheeling um, at an amazing conference, which we'll get to as well. But um, one thing that I noticed just being in town, like you said, the difference in the accents as far as people that sound, I guess, like me, the Ohio Valley type area, there's still a hint of accent with certain words, but then the actual Southern accent that occurs just because they were a few streets away, literally. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even in my own family, people raised by the same parents in the same family, some of them have Southern accents and some of them have this accent, which is quasi Middle East, Middle I almost said Middle Eastern. <laughs> a little Western. It's a little Pittsburghian. It's, you know. Oh, yeah. Got some Yenzer in there because we're an hour away mm -hmm. from Pittsburgh. Um, and of course, some West Virginian. Um, yeah. you, you know, that's, that's who we are. So, you know, place definitely matters in terms of the kinds of stories we tell and the way that we tell those stories for sure. Have you noticed a difference, um, not just in topics, but the tone of stories that come from Northern Appalachia versus like Southern Appalachia? What is, what m makes us a little distinct from the Southerners, I guess? Well, I think, you know, because obviously there's, there's a lot of different um, uh, ways that you can look at, uh, 
the area here, but if we think about how this area was industrialized for so long, I think that, um, you know, it seems, and I, I don't know that I'm right about this because I'm not a folklore expert at all, but it seems that when people tell stories that are, that are from the Southern areas, that they're much more likely to, to be about the natural world and I feel like, you know, here in the North, we're, we're just as likely to have uh, our stories take place in, um, in this industrial landscape. So that, um, you know, I, I've talked to people before who talk about like steel mills, mills that are haunted and like Wheeling was known as one of the stogie capitals of the United States at, at one point and how people say that they swear that when they're in the marsh wheeling, um, Stogie build, building downtown and on Main Street in Wheeling that they can hear the, the women still rolling those Stogies <laughs> and things like that. <laughs> so my, my thinking on that is that maybe, you know, if there is a difference that that might be it, that, that place again, like where these, these stories take place or these lessons that we learn take place um, are likely to be more, you know, in, in a, in a building, in an industrial type of environment sometimes as compared to the South, which was more agrarian. And I, I also feel like there's more coal mining stories that come out of central and Southern Appalachia compared to here, even though we have plenty of coal mines here, but yeah. that was such a predominant industry there mm -hmm. that a lot of the stories that I've heard about mines being haunted or people barely getting out of a mine because a ghost of another miner told them to get out or, or, or whatever, that those typically take place, you know, below the Mason Dixon. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, of the people or the books that you've read where people record these kind of stories, is there an author that has been a favorite of yours to read? Yeah, I'm going to probably mispronounce her last name because I encountered her work when I was really, I don't know, fourth grade, um, she wrote, or she helped worked on compiling the collection that Telltale Lilac Bush. Yeah, and the music. Music, yes. Yeah. Um, that's probably my favorite collection of uh, stories ever. <laughs> and I have bought it probably 15 or 20 times <laughs> yeah. um, because I continuously give that book away. And even though it was written such a long time ago. I mean, she had, she was having her students compile those stories. I think, wasn't she at Fairmont? Yeah. yeah. Um, so long ago, but they're still so important. The work that she and her students did there was mm -hmm. so important. And that book really, really helped shape, um, I guess what I thought was important because a lot of times I feel, and this goes back to my digital storytelling comment, I guess, you know, we're taught in our culture and any culture really, like this is what's important. These are the stories that get told. These are the stories that make the news that are validated and so on. But what her book did was to tell me that the stories of everyday people and everyday experiences and maybe experiences that other people don't believe that that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be recorded. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't become part of our history and our yeah. understanding of our culture. So she's absolutely my favorite of all um, the storytellers out there. And I know that she wasn't really the storyteller, but I think that as a person who collected them, she contributed more to um, Appalachian uh, storytelling and collecting than anybody I know. Yeah. Have you ever gone out in, in collected stories in a similar manner to what she's done? So outside of the classroom? Um, I've never really done that because I'm quite frankly, I talk too much and I, I don't, I, I'm more likely to tell the stories than to listen. Yeah. Um, and, but I've done so informally. I mean, I always tell people, don't tell me something if you don't want me to remember it because I will remember it. I will remember all your stories and later I might use them against you. <laughs> so, uh -huh. Remember that time you told me back in 19, you know, whatever. Um, so I have never done that formally, but I, 
you know, I do have my students do that because they go out into the community and they collect mm -hmm. public history. So yeah, it's, it's that kind of storytelling, but I, I generally, um, keep to myself when it comes to that I just you know <laughs> I like that I'm making a mental note too I'm not sure you told me before that I need to be mm. careful oh I, I've been oh, remiss no I'm just kidding <laughs> oh um so we met because of a wonderful creation of yours um of uniting northern Appalachian writers um, so can you talk a little bit about WANA and what it is and the importance of it? Sure. So back in 2018, a bunch of people got together and decided that for a long time, we had all been talking in small clumps about this need for a, an organization or some type of way that we could bring together writers of Northern Appalachia to not just celebrate our own writing, but to develop an understanding about what it means to be a writer from Northern Appalachia. Because a lot of people don't even realize that Northern Appalachia is made up of Northern West Virginia, parts of Ohio, parts of Pennsylvania, Maryland, and New York. Mm -hmm. Did I get them all? I think there's five. I think so, yeah. Um, and that's a widespread area but if you study the literature and the writing of that part, that subregion of Appalachia, you start to notice uh, to notice similarities. Things like writing about industry, um, things like uh, the con connections between um, this generation and people's grandparents' generation. Uh, we talk a lot at at my university. I teach at California University of Pennsylvania about how important grandparents are. To the lives of our students and this comes out in the writing of the region and it's also there's plenty of places like the pennsylvania wilds and um even here in northern west virginia where topography the allegheny plateau all of these things um are you know come together in our literature um we share some things obviously with the rest of appalachia but we have distinct themes, topics, voices, concerns, and et cetera, in the North. And so that's one thing we wanted to do was come together and try to find other people who were thinking like we were, because we know that they were doing that. Um, Cal Yu, we had our first conference about uh, Northern Appalachian writing in 2011. Mm -hmm. Other people were doing little things and big things and writing stuff and doing this stuff, but we really felt like we needed to have some kind of central voice to collect sort of these people who were like-minded. And so we had our first conference in 2019. I met you there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we um, had planned on holding an in-person conference again in 2020 and in 2022, but both of those um, ended up being virtual uh, because yeah. of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And, but they've been really successful because we've learned about more voices, voices that we didn't even know were out there that were representing um, the region. And um, in addition to our annual conference, we also go to other conferences and promote our writers work. And in March of 2020, um, along with Damian Dressick, I started, uh, we started our show, Wanna Live, which is on every Thursday night at 8 p.m. Mm -hmm. And we feature a writer from the region. They read something from their work and then we talk about it. And we have had at this point um, in excess of 70,000 views of our episodes <laughs> on YouTube, on Facebook. Um, and it's what it's shown us is that not only do our words matter to each other as in Northern Appalachians, but they matter to others as well because we're watched by all over Appalachia, California, uh, other countries. Um, yeah. So it, we know that there's a need and a desire to learn about uh, the writing of the region and, and the people that are doing that writing. Mm -hmm. When you started Want Alive, you were doing two episodes a week right? Was yes. it not like Tuesday yeah. and Thursday? It was Mondays and Thursdays. Mondays and Thursdays. 
that was a lot. I mean, but it got, it was something to look forward to also for the rest of us who were watching at the beginning of the pandemic. It was something, a distraction yes. from the world collapsing. Well, in a way for us to um, encourage people to read and to, you know, bring voices into their home that they might not have heard before. I mean, I think we were, if not the first, one of the first um, organizations to do live streams of readings at that point. Since then, of course, they've exploded everywhere. They've just blossomed. Yeah. We were virtual readings, but um, I, I, I believe that we were one of the first uh, to do that because we felt that there was this need not just to sort of soothe people at home <laughs> during the, this crisis, but to help people who may have just had a book come out or um, you know, are working on something new to get that out into the public eye because without being able to do in-person readings, how would you know? Yeah. So that somebody had a great book out. Um, right if you, you know, there's no other way really of knowing, because you can see them in a catalog or something, but to actually hear somebody read from their work is so important and encouraging people to read that work, buy that work. Yeah. So you're using storytelling um, and story sharing as a way to create a community or strengthen the community in general. Absolutely. And we've had people who have been watching us since the first episode. That's and they awesome. keep coming back and leaving comments and letting us know that they're out there. And uh, yeah. we just recorded our 100th episode mm -hmm. uh, last week Yeah, with Bobby Ann Mason, yeah. who is, if you don't know, I mean, she's amazing. I mean, Shiloh and other stories, I believe, has been taught by campuses across the country and probably the world at this point. Mm -hmm. um, she, while she's not a Northern Appalachian, she's definitely... Um, one of the best Appalachian writers out there. And, and we were really uh, fortunate to have her and so many incredible voices on our show for the you know past 100 episodes. Yeah. When the pandemic uh, dies down, are you going to move some of this to like live, literally live in-person uh, well, readings? We tried, to, we tried to do some lives and we did. We did some in-person mm -hmm. um, readings, but the pandemic has fluctuated so much that yeah. we found it was too difficult to plan mm -hmm. for that. So what we're hoping is that, you know, when it becomes, um, you know, more consistently safe, that's mm -hmm. our plan is to travel around Northern Appalachian and do, and do readings with authors in person. Yeah. That'll, that'll sure. be awesome. And everybody can give each other hugs again. Yeah. So God, I miss hugs the most more than anything else. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, so <clears throat> other than your grandmother, were there other people in your family that were storytellers that inspired you? Oh yeah. So my grandfather on the other side of my family, my, my mother's side, the Samson side of the family, Harold Samson was his name. Um, he was a storyteller, uh, just a wonderful, wonderful storyteller. And um, he actually told me the story of the golden arm. Okay. As though it happened to him. <laughs> and I did not know that this was like a famous mm -hmm. story from Appalachia until I yeah. read it when in fourth grade in music's book. And for those of you who don't know, the story of the golden arm is that, you know, somebody hears a noise every night, bang, 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 there's an arm, they don't know, you know, whatever. They go out, they dig this up, they find money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is the story of the golden arm was trying to alert, or maybe that's the telephone wildlife bush. But, um, you know, because I conflate them all the time. Yeah, yeah. But the idea is that I thought, because he always said that this happened to him. Right. I thought that it did happen to him until I read it in the book and I was like, what? He plagiarized. <laughs> but in, re <laughs> in reality, what I realized much later was that this is how storytelling works. Yeah. We do believe that this happened to us or it happened to our grandfather or it happened to our brother's dog's cat's sister's cousin. 
guinea pig. You know, like <laughs> right. we believe because these stories keep getting repeated. And, you know, it's like that whole idea of the telephone game when you were a kid mm -hmm. where you whisper in someone someone's ear, um, you know, Joe's feet smell. And by the time it gets yeah. around, the story is um, the tomato rides at midnight. <laughs> I mean, like, right. <laughs> All right. And this happens with storytelling um, on the bigger level too. And so mm -hmm. he, my grandfather, Harold was definitely the storyteller, but his, his children, my uncles, the, my fondest memories of, of uh, you know, things like Thanksgiving and other holidays would be when my uncles would come over and tell their stories from being kids and these crazy things they used to do and it was so funny I remember just begging for another one begging for another story another story like you know that they used to grease their the car hoods old car hoods you know mm -hmm. and use those as sleds yeah that'd be that's so a good people plan. would be calling child protective services these days <laughs> something like that or you know or the time that they decided that they were going to build a rocket ship in the barn and it was so dangerous and they blasted off and my uncle ended up falling from the hay mow onto the i mean the only reason he lived is because he was hard-headed right. <laughs> things like this and just just these these funny like side splitting stories where i mean bad horrible things happened in their childhood like there was abuse things like that but the levity you know, of these, they shared memories. I mean, I felt like, even though that wasn't my childhood, I always felt like I was there. Yeah. You know, that, that the day that they decided they were going to put two bicycle tires on an old go-kart and, and, and ride it down this steep hill. And, and the story goes that, that the inner tubes came off, came disconnected because they got so hot from going down the hill and they were slapping my uncle in the back of the head and in the back all the way down. And by the time they got down to the bottom of the hill, he had these giant welts <laughs> up his back and all this stuff, you know I mean? Like crazy stuff like that, that, that maybe, you know, kids hereafter wouldn't, wouldn't even dream um, right. about attempting. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, stuff like that. So that, you know, I've been around lots of storytellers in my life and I, and I'm grateful for, you know, just the humor of it and the, so the many examples. And I think if you, if you grow up with people telling lots of stories as a way to talk to each other, mm -hmm. you know, they're not going to sit down and say the other night, um, when you didn't do the dishes, it really hurt me. People in my family wouldn't say that, but they'll tell yeah. you stories. This is how we're going to communicate with each other, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm really grateful that, that that has shaped the way that I think about the world, the way that I think about my own work, the way that I, you know, am raising my child, mm -hmm. things like that. That imagination yeah. is just as important as the scientific method, right. you know, that they're both yeah. equal and different there, but they do different things. Yeah. I was going to ask about, uh, your son, if you've seen your storytelling that kind of, uh, rubbing off on him at all. Um, to a point he last year in fourth grade, he was the fourth grade poet, oh. um, which I was extremely proud of. Yeah. But if you ask him, you know, well, tell me about this poem. Well, I wasn't thinking anything. I just wrote it down. I don't know why people read so much into my poetry. It says, what it says. I don't know why people think it's profound. It says what it says. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, he, he's a good storyteller in that he has really good grasp of language. Hmm. When he was three years old, he took his sock off and he held it up and he said, look, my, my, um, my sock is empty of my foot. <laughs> That's <laughs> right very true. But it's, it's another way of yeah. seeing the world and, and playing with language. He is very playful with language. Like he is a, um, you know, he'll give you a jab right back. Right. Mm -hmm. And I always tell the story about him that I had a book come out and it was about, um, you know, this journey to motherhood and infertility that I went through. 
And the reporter said to him, um, so how do you feel about your mom? And he said, well, and he was like four, her heart is in my heart. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, right. But then two yeah. seconds later, he grabbed her microphone and went fart, 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 fart. <laughs> so um, <laughs> you really see complexity of four year old there um in right. both of the narratives with the sentiment and the uh vulgarity mm -hmm. yeah that's <laughs> <laughs> and it was funny and the reporter laughed and laughed and laughed and did not cut that from the uh <laughs> yeah <clears throat> yeah it's just it's real life that's my baby <laughs> yeah there you go yeah. oh man well i did tell you that i was gonna ask you to tell me a story so if you would imagine that I am down visiting you sitting on your porch with you mm. and a story just pops in your head to share with me, uh, what would that story be? Okay, I've got a good one. And can I offer an, an interpretation of it at the end? Yeah, please do. Okay, so um, this, this comes from my grandma, Jean. She told this story so many times and it was always told the same way, which is unusual because usually when she's told a story or a dirty joke, which was uh, honestly her absolute like shining achievement. One, one time I, I'll make an aside. My dad calls me once and he says, Hey, you got to get up here. Grandma's not going to live much longer. You need to get up here. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. And I was five, five hours away. I'm getting my stuff together and everything. About two hours later, right as I was getting on the road, my dad calls and he says, don't worry about it. You don't need to come home. And I'm like, oh, did she pass already? No, 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 no. And I'm like, well, what happened? <laughs> she had been in a coma because she had been given too much of some kind of medication she was on. Yeah. And she was in a coma for three days and they thought, this is it. She's gone. Well, not my grandma. She sat up. <laughs> <laughs> on the gurney that she was on and immediately told a filthy joke like a <laughs> filthy joke the woman had been unconscious for three days and she told this horribly dirty joke and everybody the doctors and the nurses were just bent over laughing <laughs> and that really that typifies her so yeah this is one of her stories though and it okay i have to tell you that um People who think that, you know, you're kind of done with the story once you've heard it and you think you know everything about it, um, I think they're wrong because once a story gets in under your skin, it starts working and working and working. It'll just keep working at you until you might get some insight that you hadn't before. So my grandmother always told the story that uh, she was born in 1925 and when she was around two years old, um, it was winter and she was sitting in her little dress playing blocks by the front door of the house where she lived with her grandparents and her mother who um, had never gotten married and um, had had her out of wedlock. So you can imagine this would have been 1927, uh, the scandal of, yeah. um, you know, not, not having a, uh, a father for your child and not, and not only did she not marry this man, um, but she would never tell anyone who the father of her, of her child, my grandmother, Jean, um, was. So little Jean is sitting by the door, playing with blocks, having a good time, allegedly. And um, all of a sudden, her grandmother jumps up and says, get your gun, get your gun to my grandmother's grandfather. He runs out, he gets his gun. His name was George. George gets his gun and he goes, he goes back, runs back into the living room and he says, what's going on in here? What's going on in here? And everybody, the whole house at this point is freaking out going, they don't know what's going on in her. And um, my grandmother's mom, Olive was not there, but her grandmother, Ida and her grandfather, George were. And there, there's so much chaos. Nobody knows what's going on for a minute. And here, what had happened was Ida had seen a gloved hand reach in through the front door 
and drag my baby grandma across the foyer, this little walk-in space, and drag her by the tail of her dress towards the cracked open door. Mm. And when she saw that, that's when she yelled for George to get his gun. Yeah. So this is West Virginia and everybody had loaded guns around all the time. That's probably yes. still true. Yeah. So my great grandfather, Ida goes, picks up baby Jean and grabs her, you know, to, to keep her from whoever this was. Uh, George goes to the door and just shoots out the door. It's twilight. And you know, when it's twilight or dusk, I'm sorry, when it's dusk, um, you can't hardly see. I mean, yeah famous for this, this limited visibility. And there had been a lot of snowfall. And yeah. so this combination of these two things, he didn't know what he was even seeing. And he shoots with his shotgun out the door. Um, Jean was saved, obviously. Yeah. And the next day there were blood tracks in the snow. Okay. So that's the story, right? It's quite yeah. a story. Quite a story. Yeah. 1827. I mean, and you, you know, you had the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby and all this stuff was happening. So for years, the story was just in my mind and she told it, I don't know, millions of times, hundreds of times. I don't know how many times your grandma can tell you something. She used to, I used to sit on the floor um, between her knees and she would plait braid, you know, my hair and tell me stories. And, and I long for that, like, I can't even explain that longing. There's not a word mm -hmm. to explain how I wish for that. Um, but one time I was using this as an example of a story in the classroom with my students. At this point, I was like 38 years old. Okay, mm -hmm. and she told me the story probably at birth. Yeah. You know, you won't believe this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm using this as an example to talk about storytelling to my students and finding stories. So I had them draw like, you know, a graph of the things that matter to, or a place that matters to them. Mm -hmm. And then as they move through that place on a piece of paper, think about the stories that they could tell as they walked around mentally and on, on a piece of paper, right? Um, and I did my grandparents' house because it was so important to me. Yeah. And so I'm telling my students a story about my grandmother and the, the attempted abduction and how her grandfather had shot out into the snow and there were blood tracks in the snow the next day. And it hit me so hard that I literally braced myself like at the chalkboard. And I said, this is why this story is important. Of course, a little girl wanted her dad to want her. Of course. And he didn't come back because maybe he got killed or maybe he was too afraid because he got shot. Mm. The man trying to abduct her was her father. And it wow. just like crushed me when I realized that because she had always said it was probably my dad trying to abduct me, right? Yeah. But it didn't occur to me until I told my students, this is what happens with storytelling, right? So you tell the story, you tell the story, you tell the story. Suddenly you tell it to a different audience, an audience you've never told it to before. Yeah. You see it in a completely different way. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, I couldn't help but imagine that, you know, my grandmother who looked for her dad all her life, and this is a, um, a big part of the book that I'm working on, and, and could never find him. And that she told this story over and over again because she so desperately wanted to believe that he wanted her. Yeah. But he was prevented somehow mm -hmm. from finding her and building a relationship and ultimately loving her. Yeah. Wow. And so, yeah, that, that's, that's my story. That's a um, good one. It's a yeah. sad one. <laughs> And I, speaking of sad, I will add that my grandmother told me the story of the Mothman, the, you know, from <laughs> yeah. every, I think most people who watch her episodes and things probably know the Mothman story. She told me yeah. that story when I was a little girl and the story didn't have the Mothman in it though. It was a sad mm -hmm. story about people crossing the silver bridge yep. and all of their Christmas presents were floating down the river. Right. And it was this really traumatic story. And then I watched the Richard Gere movie, 
the Mothman prophecy. And I was like, my grandmother told me that story. Yeah. Oh my God, there was a Mothman in it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Where did that figure in? <laughs> where did that come from? He didn't mention a, some creature with big red eyes. Like, where did mm-hmm. this come from? <laughs> so much better. Um, so I guess my, my point, everything I've said sort of boils down into one thing that, um, you know, no story, no matter how static you think it is, or no matter how, you know, boring or tried and true, or nobody cares about that or whatever, they take on a life of their own and depending on who is telling it why they're telling it where they're telling it to whom they're telling it to um, all of those things um, matter tremendously and can give new life and appreciation um, for a story and my only regret is that I can't go back and tell my grandmother I understand Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah thanks anyway, that was yeah uh, thanks for sharing that that was amazing um well for those that are watching and have fallen in love with your storytelling can you tell them where they can find you check yes. out your work i am on christinafasonic.com and you can find lots of my stories there including the um history pieces that i write for um, about wheeling history and I write for everybody and wheeling about our history. Um, but there's also good resources there um, about my book, Digital Storytelling, yeah. a guidebook for educators. So there's material in there. It's all about digital storytelling. Um, and you can just find out more about me on there. And as, as you know, Heather, I do not hold back. <laughs> I firmly believe that, you know, uh, sadness and shame and those kinds of things live in the dark. And when you can shine a light on them by telling your story that you remove the pain and that things die in the light, you know, and they also thrive in the light. So um, storytelling is, I think, a way for us to um, be more full human. Yeah, I, I agree. And, uh, I'm so glad that we're friends. Me too. Me too. And thank you for asking me to come on. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Um, so then my, my thing here is to say, if you have enjoyed this episode, like subscribe. Um, if you want more content from small town monsters, you can become a channel member also known as a squad member. Um, but yeah, if you have any suggestions for storytellers or collectors for me to talk to, Give me an email at heather at smalltownmonsters.com or leave a comment below. All right, until next time.